are listening to Talk Geek to Me News number 74, recorded for Wednesday, September 5th, 2012. You are listening to the tech-only Hacker Public Radio Edition. To get the full podcast, including political commentary and other controversial topics, please visit www.talkgeektome.us. Here are the vital statistics for this program. Your feedback matters to me. Please send your comments to dg at deepgeek.us. The webpage for this program is at www.talkgeektome.us. You can subscribe to me on Identica as the username DeepGeek, or you could follow me on Twitter. My username there is DGTGTM, as in Deep Geek Talk Geek to Me. Before I start the tech roundup, I'd like to make an announcement that me and my partners in my web server co-op have moved our server. We've decided to move our data to Iceland, a country with an active work going on in the legislature to make them the best country for new media that needs freedom of speech protections. And no, I didn't start the idea. <laughs> Someone else said it's time for the move to me instead of our little co-op. So I'm very excited because now I get to change upcoming. Shortly, shortly I'll change one of my sound bites to be inserting our pirate news stream into the interwebs via Iceland or something like that. I'll come up with something good for you guys. We is now international in a way, and I hope you'll share my joy in that. Before I kick off the Tech Roundup, I also want to talk about the content of the Tech Roundup. I'm going to actually read two different articles about domain seizures. Both have a little different perspective, and I think it's important to get them both in. We also have a perspectives column from James Hamilton, the engineer from Amazon Web Services. Normally, I shun his work that reads like advertising copy, but the problems that they are trying to overcome, and I'm not a big company guy, so I probably won't be a client, are just so interesting <laughs> and relatively unique from my perspective. I hear nothing else about him except from his column. So I'll be having that. So if you're thinking I'm advertising, I'm not, but like I said, it's just some interesting shit. And now the tech roundup. From TorrentFreak.com, dated August 30, 2012, by Ernesto, U.S. returns seized domains to streaming link site after 18 months. At the end of January last year, the U.S. authorities kicked off yet another round of domain seizures, this time against sites connected with sports streaming. One of the most prominent targets at the time was Roja Directa, one of Spain's most popular sites, which describes itself as a major internet sports broadcast index. The site links to free streams of many soccer events plus NBA, MLB, NFL, MPB, and IPL matches. While rights holders see Rocha Directa as an illegal thorn in their side, Spanish courts have already ruled otherwise. The site is owned by a Spanish company that pays its taxes and has been deemed to operate legally in Spain, not once, but twice. However, they didn't hold back the U.S. government's decision to seize the .com and .org domains of the company. After the seizure, Roja Directa continued its operation as usual under .es and .me domains. However, it wasn't planning on giving up the original domains that easily and fought back in and out of court. We immediately initiated talks with the government 
through our legal representatives in San Francisco and New York in order to obtain the return of our domains, Roger Director's owner explains now. Since it wasn't possible at that stage to recover domains amicably, we filed a complaint against the government, the Department of Homeland Security, and the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency of the United States of America. The result was a long court battle in which the U.S. had to show why it was allowed to keep the domain names. Now, after nearly 19 months, it appears that the U.S. authorities are not able to. Yesterday, United States Attorney Preet Bahara informed the judge that they are giving up the case. In light of the particular circumstances of this litigation, the government now seeks to dismiss its amended forfeiture complaint. The decision to seek dismissal of this case will best promote judicial economy and serve the interests of justice. Bahrara writes, The case has now been dismissed, meaning that Roja Director can welcome back its .com and .org domains. Roja Director's owner says, They swiftly informed all the responsible registries and... The domains should be up and running again later today. Shortly after learning of the court order, we start proceedings with the organizations responsible for all .com and .org domain registrations, Verisign and PIR respectively, in order to restore the domains. In the coming hours, Roger Director will again be accessible from RojaDirector.com and RojaDirector.org, that is, from the domains that never should have been censored, he concludes. This is not the first time the authorities have been forced to return a seized domain. Last year, music blog Dajaz One had its domain name returned after more than 12 months. It turned out that the seizure initiated by the RIAA was a mistake. Thus far, the mistakes have been without consequences for the U.S., but it's clear that passing super-like legislation where domains can be seized left and right will become harder and harder. From TechDirt.com by Mike Masnick, dated Friday, August 31, 2012. Congressional reps questioned feds over botched domain seizures. The government's admission that it had once again mistakenly seized and censored a website for over a year when it dropped its case against Russia Director Porto 80 has reminded everyone that Dajaz 1 was not an isolated case. It was a part of a wider program where DHS, via ICE, and the DOJ systematically believed whatever the RIAA and MPAA were telling them, leading to the blatant censorship of a variety of websites without proper due process. Thankfully, some in Congress are paying attention. Bipartisan congressional reps Zoe Lofgren and Jason Chavetz and Jared Paulus have teamed up to send a letter raising a number of questions about operation in our sites to both Attorney General Holder and Homeland Security Secretary Napolitano. The letter does not even mention the Roja Director case, but focuses on what happened to Dajaz 1, pointing out their concern with the program and how it appears to violate free speech rights, ignore due process, and destroy legitimate businesses. The letter raises the fact that Dajaz 1 is not an isolated case. As we pointed out in the past, we're aware of at least a few other domains that were seized and whose owners had challenged the seizures. And yet, well over a year later, there appeared to be no evidence of either a return of those domains or of a future process started. Given how the feds treated Dajaz 1 with secret extensions preventing Dajaz 1 from representing itself in court, we've wondered how many other domains the DOJ and ICE had incorrectly and illegally seized, and which they were now keeping in that kind of holding pattern. It's good to see 
that this letter directly asks about the issue. Begin quote, Other complaints have been raised by websites seized under In Our Sites that bear similarities to the Dajaz 1 case. These complaints center around unnecessary delays in advancing and resolving cases, difficulty in obtaining documents from the government that are fundamental to the underlying cases, such as affidavits, and difficulty even maintaining contact with the U.S. attorneys prosecuting the case. The effect of these problems is to severely limit the ability of website owners to challenge the legality and merits of the domain name seizures. The letter goes on to ask a series of important questions for both DHS and DOJ, especially regarding the utter failure of both departments in the Dajaz 1 situation. 1. What is the process for determining which sites to target? Who is involved in that process? What specific steps do the DOJ and ICE take to ensure that affidavits and other material are thoroughly reviewed for accuracy prior to seizing a domain? 2. To what extent are government agents required to evaluate whether the potentially infringing material to which target sites link or which they host themselves are non-infringing fair uses, impliedly licensed, and or de minimis use? 3. Do government agents consider whether a site complies with the DMCA safe harbors? If so, how does this affect the determination to target a site? 4. How many sites have attempted to retrieve their domains via any process, judicial or informal, and what is the status of those cases? 5. Have you ever made any changes to your domain seizure policies or their implementation as a result of the issues arising from the Dajas 1 seizure or any other seizure? If so, what were these changes? 6. What specific steps has the DOJ and ICE taken to ensure that domain name seizure cases proceed without unnecessary delays and that website owners seeking to restore their domain names have swift access to the officials and documents necessary to resolve their cases? 7. How many more seizures do you anticipate occurring in the next six months and year? It seems to me that questions 4 and 5 are the key ones here, which means I fully expect DOJ and ICE to be especially non-responsive in whatever answers they provide. From TorrentFreak.com by Enigmax, dated September 1, 2012, Pirate Party Pirate Bay Proxy Fights Back After DDoS Attack. The emergence of anonymous-style activist groups in recent years, the DDoS attack has proven a popular way to not only voice dissent, but also take away opponents' freedom of speech. But while some may find it entertaining to watch government and corporate websites collapse under the onslaught of tens of thousands of angry LOICs, this is a knife that cuts both ways, and increasingly torrent sites are at the sharp end. Suffering more than its fair share of attacks is the Pirate Bay. In mid-May, the site collapsed under a huge denial-of-service assault after it, maybe coincidentally, criticized elements of the anonymous collective for carrying out DDoS attack on Virgin Media, the first local ISP to file court orders to block access to the Pirate Bay. But while Virgin was DDoSed for blocking access to the Pirate Bay, it is now the turn of the UK Pirate Party to pay the price for facilitating access to the infamous torrent site. Although it is favored by UK citizens looking to circumvent the local ISP blockade against the Pirate Bay, the reverse proxy operated by PPUK is used by people all over the world, but since Wednesday the site has been largely unavailable. We were hit by a DDoS attack at about 2200 on the 29th, 
PPUK's Harry Percival told Torrent Freak. The proxy had been hit before, but this time things were different. Previous attacks were directed toward the site's main IP, but this time the target was PPUK's main hostname. PPUK were in the middle of a new project when the attacker struck. We had been testing geographically aware DNS as part of an ongoing project and have different IPs for the UK and worldwide, Percival explained. However, due to the attack, PPUK's upstream provider blocked several of the IP addresses being utilized by the proxy. Yesterday, all IPv4 addresses were blocked, but now service is being restored and the site is returned to normal. IPv6 addresses remained online throughout and were not affected by the DDoS. Pirate Party informs Torrent Freak they are working with their provider to mitigate the issue and are also looking into advanced anti-DDoS technology to fight any future attacks. To read the rest of this article, follow links in the show notes. From perspectives.mvderona.com, dated August 21, 2012, by James Hamilton, Glacier, Engineering the Cold Data Storage in the Cloud. Earlier today, Amazon Web Services announced Glacier, a low-cost, cloud-hosted cold storage solution. Cold storage is a class of storage that is discussed infrequently, and yet it is by far the largest storage class of them all. Ironically, the storage we usually talk about and the storage I've worked on for most of my life is the high IOPS rate storage supporting mission-critical databases. These systems today are the best hosted on NAND Flash and I've been talking recently about two AWS solutions to address this storage class. Cold storage is different. It's the only product I've ever worked upon where the custom requirements are single dimensional. With most products the solution space is complex and even when some customers may like a competitive product better for some applications your product still may win in another. Cold storage is pure and undimensional. There is only really one metric of interest, cost per capacity. It's an undifferentiated requirement that the data be secure and very highly durable. These are essentially table stakes in that no solution is worth considering if it's not rock solid on durability and security. But the only dimension of differentiation is price per gigabyte. Cold storage is unusual because the focus needs to be singular. How can we deliver the best price per capacity now and continue to reduce it over time? The focus on price over performance, price over latency, price over bandwidth actually made the problem more interesting. With most products and services it's usually possible to be the best on at least some dimensions, even if not on all. On cold storage, to be successful, the price per capacity target needs to be hit. On Glacier, the entire project was focused on delivering a penny per gigabyte a month with high redundancy and security and to be on a technology base where the price can keep coming down over time. Cold storage is elegant in its simplicity and, although the margins will be slim, the volume of cold storage data in the world is stupendous. It's a very large market segment. All storage in all tiers backs up to the cold storage tier, so it's provably bigger than all the rest. Audit logs end up in cold storage, as do web logs, security logs, seldom access compliance data, and all the other data I refer jokingly to as write-only storage. 
it turns out that most files in active storage tiers are actually never accessed. In cold storage, this trend is even more extreme, where reading a storage object is the exception, but the objects absolutely have to be there when needed. Backups aren't needed often, and compliance logs are infrequently accessed, but when they are needed, they need to be there. They absolutely have to be readable, and they must have been stored securely. But when cold objects are called for, they don't need to be there instantly. The cold storage tier customer requirement for latency ranges from minutes to hours, and in some cases even days. Customers are willing to give up access speed to get very low cost. Potentially rapidly requiring database backups don't get pushed down to cold storage until they are unlikely to get accessed. But once pushed, it's very inexpensive to store them indefinitely. Tape has long been the media of choice for very cold workloads, and tape remains an excellent choice at scale. What's unfortunate is that the scale point where tape starts to win has been going up over the years. High-scale tape robots are incredibly large and expensive. The good news is that very high-scale storage customers, like Large Hadron Collider, are very well served by tape. But over the years, the volume economics of tape have been moving upscale, and fewer and fewer customers are cost-effectively served by tape. In the 80s, I had a tape storage backup system for my Usenet server and other home computers. At the time, I used tape personally, and any small company could afford tape. But this scale point, where tape makes economic sense, has been moving up. Small companies are really better off using disk since they don't have the scale to hit the volume economics of tape. The same has happened at mid-sized companies. Tape usage continues to grow, but more and more of the market ends up on disk. What's wrong with the bulk of the market using disk for cold storage? The problem with disk storage systems is they are optimized for performance and they are expensive to purchase, to administer, and even to power. Disk storage systems don't currently target cold storage workload with that necessary fanatical focus on cost per capacity. What's broken is that customers end up not keeping data they need to keep or paying too much to keep it because the conventional solution to cold storage isn't available at small and even medium scales. Cold storage is a natural cloud solution in that the cloud can provide the volume economics and allow even small-scale users to have access to low-cost, off-site, multi-data center cold storage at a cost previously only possible at very high scale. Implementing cold storage centrally in the cloud makes excellent economic sense in that all customers can gain from the volume economics of the aggregate usage. Amazon's Glacier now offers cold storage where each object is stored redundantly in multiple independent data centers at a penny per gigabyte a month. I love the direction and velocity that our industry continues to move. By the way, if Glacier has caught your interest and you are an engineer or engineering leader with an interest in massive scale distributed storage systems, we have big plans for Glacier and are hiring. Send your resume to glacier-jobs at amazon.com. From TechDirt.com by Tim Cushing, dated August 31, 2012, Common Sense for School Internet Safety Policies. 
We talk quite a bit here about the growing pains of various institutions when faced with upstarts like the Internet and social media. The usual suspects like the recording industry and newspapers come to mind first, but one of our oldest institutions continues to painfully stumble its way into the future. The Educational System the institution's deep-seated mistrust of the most used encyclopedia in the world is already well known, but as email has given way to texting and social networks have expanded past the confines of the schoolyard, those seeking to somehow control the seeming chaos have worked steadily to bang out reactionary policies and ever-tightening guidelines. Rather than temper their actions with some common sense or a bit of perspective, educators and some parent groups have often decided to deploy terrible zero-tolerance policies and overly broad guidelines, relying on a variety of tech-related boogeymen, online predators, cyberbullying, sexting porn, um, Wikipedia vandals, to keep questions to a minimum. Fortunately, someone is actually attempting to inject some common sense into school internet safety policies. Tackling many of the issues that seem to go hand in hand with attempting to provide analog guidance in a digital era. Via Bruce Schneier comes 26 Internet Safety Talking Points, compiled by Scott McLeod at Dangerously Irrelevant. McLeod, founder of the UCEA Center for Advanced Study of Technology Leadership and Education, Castle, runs through the whole alphabet and adds a few corollaries, detailing talking points he uses when discussing Internet safety with principals and superintendents. The entire piece is definitely worth reading. Here's a few selections from McLeod's list. First off, bad things will happen, but it's not the tool being used. It's the user. C. Mobile phones, Facebook, Wikipedia, YouTube, blogs, Wikispaces, Google, and whatever other technologies you're blocking are not inherently evil. Stop demonizing them and focus on people's behavior, not the tools, particularly when it comes to making policy. In addition to school administrators, members of our government and various security agencies should be presented with a copy of this talking point. F. You never can promise 100% safety. For instance, you never would promise the parent that her child would never ever be in a fire at school. So quit trying to guarantee 100% safety when it comes to technology. Provide reasonable supervision, implement reasonable procedures and policies, and move on. Another thing our government and its affiliate agencies do well, use fear to acquire and maintain control. G. The online predators will prey on your school children argument is a false boogeyman. A scare tactic that is fed to us by the media, politicians, law enforcement, and computer security vendors. The number of reported incidents in the news of this occurring is zero. To read the rest of the story, follow links in the show notes. Other items in the news. To read the story associated with these headlines, follow links in the show notes. The battle for privacy intensifies in Australia by EFF's Rebecca Bow. From torrentfreak.com, Kim.com wins release of $4.83 million. Some lawyers set to get paid. Pirate Bay founder arrested in Cambodia. News from techdirt.com, perspectives.mvderona.com, havanatimes.org, rawstory.com, maggiemcneil.wordpress.com, and allgov.com, used under arranged permission. News from torrentfreak.com and freeculture.org used under permission of the Creative Commons by attribution license. News sources retain their respective copyrights.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Talk Geek to Me. Here are the vile statistics for this program. Your feedback matters to me. Please send your comments to dg at deepgeek.us. The webpage for this program is at www.talkgeektome.us. You can subscribe to me on Identica as the username DeepGeek, or you could follow me on Twitter. My username there is DGTGTM, as in DeepGeek. Talk Geek to Me. This episode of Talk Geek to Me is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 Unpoured License. This license allows commercial reuse of the work as well as allowing you to modify the work so long as you share alike the same rights you have received under this license. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talk Geek to Me. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binref.com. All Binref projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license.